All right, Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at, uh, we're still looking at the elements of worship. We've got to the sacraments, and, and we did Lord's Supper last week. We were talking about baptism today. In just a very quick, brief overview, we'll finish this this, uh, this afternoon here. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and his uncircumcision of your heart, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And we're looking at our second sermon on baptism, Christian baptism, and we're up to uh, point number two, explaining what we've talked about previously. Number two, baptism, <coughs> like circumcision, is applied to covenant infants, and therefore, the application of the meaning of the sacrament to the heart by the Holy Spirit is not tied to the moment when water is applied. And that's the position of the Reformed churches. That's the position of the Confession of Faith. They did not teach baptismal regeneration. Here's the Confession of Faith, 28.6. The grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto. That means the elect. According to the counsel of God's own will, and here's the important phrase, in his appointed time. Sometimes people, you know, I, I have children that they never knew when they became a Christian. Sometimes people know that when they became a Christian. They didn't believe, and then all of a sudden they believe. God works in different ways. Uh, I mean, he has different times for different people. But that's in God's own time. It's not tied to the application of water which is the Episcopal and the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic and the Federal Vision view. <coughs> Many baptized are never regenerated, with others are born again several years after the rite. Those who teach baptismal regeneration must redefine the doctrine of salvation in a heretical Arminian or semi-Pelagian manner to account for the millions of baptized people who never confess Jesus Christ or show any signs or evidences whatsoever of possessing true faith. But according to Doug Wilson, if you're an Eskimo, lesbian, woman, bishop, you're really a Christian, according to Doug Wilson. <clears throat> they must also explain Acts 8.13, where Peter rebukes Simon Magus for being unconverted only, only moments after his water baptism. The whole church debate over whether children, uh, over whether we should assume that children that covenant children are regenerate is foolish and unproductive. Such children are part of the visible church and must be looked upon and treated as set apart or holy and covenant with God to serve and obey him and fully obligated to all the requirements of the covenant as they grow in understanding, wisdom, and stature. They are not to be treated as little pagans, but as members of the church of Christ. Now, whether or not they're regenerated, the scripture doesn't say, and we don't know. So to assume they are, and presume they are, and all these kind of things, that's just foolishness. That's not our job. The secret things belong to God. If they make a credible profession of faith, 
We do not know until they make a credible profession of faith. Only those elected before the foundation of the world are guaranteed regeneration, and we cannot see or know the heart. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them, Matthew 7.20. Obviously, they're members of the church, the visible church. They should not be treated as pagans. But we should not speculate and just assume they're all regenerated. That's obviously false historically. Even in the strictest Reformed churches, families with many children will have one or two that are not regenerated, ever. That happens. It's sad, it's tragic. Look at Abraham, look at Jacob, Isaac, look at David. Uh, not every, every faithful Christian will have, now some, all their children are Christians, but some, they're not. Number three, Christian baptism is not a mere dedication ceremony. It has real covenant obligations, not only for the infant or the new convert, but also for parents and members of the congregation. The rite of baptism is an act of faith and a covenant vow on the part of the parents to bring up that child as a strict, faithful follower of Christ. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training or nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. And Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them, it's the words of the Torah, diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. This command is so deep and comprehensive that it requires an explicitly Christian education not simply a 15-minute devotional. Now, obviously, parents who send their children to state schools, which are secular humanistic, they're atheistic schools, they're antichrist schools, they're pagan schools, are violating covenant vows. In Reformed churches, if they were really serious about baptism, they would, not, they would discipline parents who sent their children to state schools. Now, if you have people who are extremely poor like a single mother or something, then the church should step in and help them get a Christian school. <clears throat> the child is obligated to always live in accordance with the covenant of baptism due to the meaning of baptism in the covenant headship of the parents. Ephesians 6, 1-3. And by the way, children who are baptized... Trinitarian baptism, and they grow up and they reject the faith, will receive a greater judgment on the day of judgment than pagans. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you and your, you may live long on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1-3. And it's interesting, Paul, the original Hebrews, live long in the land, and he changes that to earth, because now the gospel is universal. Proverbs 7, 1 to 2. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Note that in Ephesians 6, 3, Paul applies Old Testament covenant obedience blessing language, prosperity and length of days, to faithful new covenant Christian children. So people say, well, all those covenant obligations of the Old Testament, they don't apply to Christians today. No, well, Paul, according to Paul, they do apply. There are blessings and curses associated with keeping the covenant. 
Jesus fulfilled and abrogated the ceremonial laws, but the moral laws as covenant obligations to the covenant are still binding. The heathen must obey because they are creatures of God. Everybody has to obey God's moral law. A sin is a sin, whether you're a pagan or not. The covenant people, however, must obey because they are not simply creatures, but they have made part, been made part of God's family. They are in the covenant. They have a double obligation. A creational obligation, we've been created by God, and a covenantal obligation. We're in God's covenant. So when a pagan commits adultery, it's a horrible sin. When a Christian commits adultery, it's a horrible sin, even more horrible because they're being disloyal to their covenant vows to God. They're being disloyal to their baptism and what it means. The child is part of the covenant community and has a special covenant obligation to trust in Christ, habitually obey the moral law as a standard for sanctification, and follow the whole word of God as the sole authority for faith and life. The whole church verbally and publicly promises to pray for the child and assist the parents in their duty to faithfully carry out their covenant obligations. Now, uh, and this is part of all the church books, directories that, that you know, OPC, PCA, RPCNA, the original Westminster Standards, they all have directions in this line. Such important teaching should be briefly and clearly explained by the pastor, the minister, immediately prior to baptism so members understand the significance of baptism and the importance of their covenant obligations. You know, so do people understand how important and critical this is? It's a, it's a real vow. God will hold you to it. If you've been baptized, you have an obligation to serve Christ. You have a moral obligation to serve Christ, whether you're baptized as an adult or baptized as a baby. And you better do it. Because if you don't, you'll receive a special curse for not doing it. Now let's look at the proper recipients of baptism very briefly, because uh, once again, the, uh, we live in a Baptistic culture, especially here in Texas. Although the Reformed churches condemn sacramentalism, they all held to paedo-baptism, uh, which is infant baptism. Paedo-baptism. Paedo is the word for child, and baptism is the word for Baptism. The Westminster Confession says, 28.4, not only those who do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. 28.4. Now, Baptists object to this doctrine by saying, well, there's no command in the scripture that says baptize infants. And uh, they're very sloppy about this because the Bible does teach good and necessary consequence. You know, we don't have an explicit statement on the Trinity. We don't have explicit, you know, there are some things where you have to compare Scripture with Scripture and come up with a doctrine. <clears throat> Although we commend our Baptist brothers for demanding proof from Scripture, infant baptism is easily supportable from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. And here's the biblical arguments very briefly. First, infant baptism logically proceeds from covenant theology. There is one covenant of grace that continues through all the various covenantal administrations, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, New Covenant. The various administrations build on each other and are fully realized in the New Covenant. 
These administrations are organically related and are not to be treated as something wholly new, different, and separate, as in dispensationalism, which was invented in the 19th century by Charles Nelson Darby, or John Nelson Darby. It's a heresy. It's very recent, yet it was adopted by almost all evangelicals and fundamentalists in the 1920s, and, and even older than that. Jeremiah clearly connects the new covenant to the Mosaic administration in 31, 31 and following, and the covenant with Abraham, Jeremiah 32, 39 to 41. You can look them up later. I'm being brief here. I don't want to go too far into this. Paul says that the true seed of Abraham are not the natural descendants of the patriarch, but rather everyone, whether circumcised or not, whether Jew or Gentile, who has faith in Christ. Romans 14, 9 to 13, see Galatians 3, 26 to 29, and Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. He calls Abraham the father of us all in Romans 4, 6. 4, 16. Jews and Gentiles. He's the father of us all, if you believe in Christ. And he calls true believers the sons of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile, in Galatians 3, 7. He also notes that the law cannot annul the promises, Galatians 3, 17. Christians are the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. They are called the circumcision, Philippians 3, 3. Dispensationalism is a total stupid heresy. There is only one olive tree, by the way, to which Gentiles have been grafted by faith. Everyone saved in both administrations is saved by the blood of Christ, and their regeneration, sanctification, perseverance, and resurrection unto life flows from the efficacy of the Redeemer's death and resurrection. The new covenant is better because it occurs after the redemptive work of Christ, and thus there is a greater effusion of the Holy Spirit, John 16 and 7 and Acts 2, 1 to 4, which is prophesied in Joel. Special revelation is now complete, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, and the victorious resurrected Savior is now interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God, Hebrews 7, 17, 22 to 24. So it is a better covenant with better promises. But... There's one covenant of grace. There's only one way to be saved in both Testaments. Scripture teaches that the mediator of both covenantal administrations is Jesus Christ. Romans 11, 26 to 27. See Isaiah 27, 9. John 14, 6. Romans 3, 21 to 30. The people of God of both administrations are one people, one church. Acts 15, 14 to 17. And of course, see Amos 9, 11 to 12. That's where, uh, it's, it's not Peter there, it's uh, James, at the, the, the first church council, takes a passage that clearly applies to the Jews, and he applies it to the Christian church, explicitly, completely refutes dispensationalism. And then, of course, Christ is building his temple, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, Revelation 21, 3 to, 2 to 3, his church, his people, and all nations are flowing into it, Isaiah 2, 2. The middle wall of partition, the ceremonial law has been abrogated, but the way of salvation, faith in Christ alone, and the standard of sanctification, the moral law, remains the same. Israel's special covenant relationship with God after Jesus' resurrection applies to the multinational new covenant church. 2 Corinthians 6.16, see Exodus 29.45, Leviticus 26.12, Jeremiah 31.31, and following, etc., Instead of seeing a radical distinction, radical distinction between Israel and the church as in dispensational thought, we must see an organic unity 
There's an organic unity. And this covenantal unity teaches us that when looking at how God views the children of believers, we should expect continuity of their placement in the covenant community, the visible church, unless there are specific New Testament instructions otherwise. As we look at specific texts, we will see that their membership in the New Covenant Church continues. Dispensationalism has trained Christians falsely to view, have a view of the assumption of discontinuity with the Old Testament, where the biblical view, the Reformed view, the Reformational view, is that we should assume continuity unless there is teaching regarding discontinuity. And regarding the ceremonial laws, there's all kinds of teaching showing it discontinues, in, in the book of Acts, in Galatians, in the book of Hebrews especially. Second, the Bible teaches that the children of believers are members of the covenant in both administrations, old and new, and receive the same promises. This teaching is first made clear in God's promise to Abraham. Listen to this, uh, Genesis 17, 10 to 14. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then the covenant with Abraham and his descendants leads to God's command for the covenant sign of membership to be given to every male child. Okay, earlier that was Genesis 17, 7, and then, of course, read 10 to 14. This treatment as a result of covenant membership is not a mere ceremonial or civil law, even though the Old Testament form of the sacrament as a bloody rite has been replaced with a sprinkling of water. Just like the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, there can be a element of a commandment that's positivistic, that's not a moral thing, but the meaning continues. It was relig a religious light that symbolized regeneration, Ezekiel 36, 25 and Titus 3, 5, union with Christ and the righteousness of faith, Romans 4, 11 to 14. It was a sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the same manner as baptism, Colossians 2, 13 to 14, Titus 3, 5. If the children of believers are holy and receive the same promises as the children of believers in the Old Testament, that on what theological or exegetical basis can the sign be withheld from the children of New Covenant believers? In other words, the theology of the New Testament teaches us very clearly continuity, not discontinuity. Peter, alluding to the New Te Old Testament covenantal language, says, the promise of salvation in Christ is to you and your children. Acts 2.39 The phrase for you and your children is clearly an allusion to God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, 17. The children of believers are in the covenant and are to receive the sign of the covenant and formally take on themselves the obligations of the covenant. The Bible teaches covenant headship, that families are organic covenantal institutions. Ask yourself, would Peter's Jewish and proselyte audience, who had been trained as Jews, interpret the apostles' words in terms of Genesis 17 and the Old Testament covenant theology? Or would they view them through the lens of American Baptistic individualism? And the answer to that question is obvious. To you and your children, to a Jew, means what it meant to Abraham. Baptists point out that Peter goes on to say, and all who are afar off, Acts 2.39. And this phrase is supposed to make the promise regarding the children of believers as insignificant. But the word macron, which means is translated afar off, refers to space, 
not time, and simply indicates that the covenant promises extend to the Gentiles and their children, if they believe, as well as the Jews. The Baptist interpretation of Acts 2.39 is built on the strange and rather incredible presupposition that Peter's appeal to God's Old Testament covenantal view of the family is now, in the New Covenant era, no longer applicable. And that a Jew, speaking to Jews, who alludes to the Old Testament, had the Baptist presupposition in mind. Beloved, we're supposed to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Baptist view makes no sense whatsoever. And we must studiously avoid importing modern alien assumptions into the text, which is what Baptists do. And believe me, I used to be a Baptist, so I know the arguments on both sides. I used to debate, and I remember I met with a, a group of elders from the OPC in the 70s. And these guys couldn't explain if a baptism to me. They, didn't, they couldn't explain it. They just didn't know their theology. And if they had known their theology, I would have made progress in the faith earlier. I had to learn it on my own, because these guys, their arguments were terrible. They just didn't know theology very well. I mean, they obviously knew it in other areas. Now, yes, it is true that Peter says that faith and repentance is necessary to be saved, verse 38. But that was true in the Old Testament as well. The sacraments are not seals without faith and an interior work of the Spirit. Paul says that if even one parent is a Christian, the children are holy, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. What does that word holy mean? It means the children are set apart by God and consecrated. This means that God himself regards the children of believers as part of God's people, the visible church. The sign of church membership is Christian baptism. Does this mean that those who are baptized are automatically regenerated? No, not at all, as we noted before. As we have seen, faith is always necessary, but it is not tied to the moment of baptism in the case of covenant infants. And you've got to go back to the Old Testament and the doctrine of, the, there's the national Israel, election in the national or corporate sense, and then there's individual election or uh, the, the remnant, the, the true believers. It's uh, Elijah, says the, Lord, says the Lord. I'm the only one left. They're all, they've all abandoned you, God. They're all worshiping Baal. And God says, no, no, no. I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is the Israel, as Paul says, and then there's true Israel. And that's the same with Christians. I wish everybody baptized was saved, but that's not the case. The Old Testament inclusion of infants is supported by many New Testament examples of household baptisms. Both Lydia, the word household is used, Acts 16.15 in the Philippian jailer, and the, the Greek is ponoike, which means all his or his whole household, had their children and households baptized. Paul baptized the household of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 1.16. The term house or family are inclusive of children. In his epistle to Timothy, See, uh, 1 Timothy uh, 3.12 and 5.14, Paul uses the term house and children almost as synonyms. For children are members of the household. The members of the household, unless excommunicated, obviously if they get older and they reject Christ, they are to be excommunicated and not given the Lord's Supper, but that's if they reject Christ. The children of believers, unless they're excommunicated, are members of the visible church. The Baptist contention that it is possible that every child in these households was older and made a credible profession of faith is very unlikely. 
It is based on a presupposition, not the analogy of Scripture. Once again, the Old Testament is our guide to understanding what these Jews, who only had the Old Testament at the time, meant when they said things. In addition, we must not forget that all the Old and New Testament commands for God's people to catechize their children and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 49, Ephesians 6, 4, etc., flows from the fact that the children are in the covenant and are required to keep their covenant obligations. Why do you bring your child up as a Christian, as a strict Christian? Why do you make them go to church? Why do you catechize them? Why do you make sure they don't go to a public school and you teach them the Christian world and life view in every discipline, math, science, everything, is saturated with the Bible? Why? Faithfulness in doctrine and ethics and practice is required. In Psalm 103, 17, 18, we read, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. And Mary alludes to this passage, this psalm in uh, Luke 1, 48 to 50. Those who fear him from generation to generation. So she applies it to the coming of Christ. In Jeremiah, God makes an everlasting covenant with his people. Quote, this is 32 uh, from 38 to 40, for the good of them and their children after them. God has always included children in the covenant. Through Isaiah, Yahweh said that his covenant and words are not to depart from their mouths. That is their confession or testimony. For their descendants, descendants, 59.21. Ezekiel says the covenant is for their children and their children's children. 37, 24 to 26. The covenant membership of infinites of believers is designed for multi-generational covenant continuity. This was not made up by John Calvin or John Knox. This was established by God. And it continues in the New Testament. Covenant headship continues, and covenant continuity continues, and covenant membership of children continues. In the second commandment, God promises to show mercy to his faithful believers for a thousand generations. Exodus 26, Deuteronomy 5, 10, and 7, 9, and 12, etc. God's covenant love is not simply individualistic, but it's extended to covenant family, so faithfulness will extend from generation to generation. And this point is especially clear in Psalm 78. For he instituted in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded their fathers, that they should make them known to their children, who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's verses 5 to 7. The Lord tells us explicitly that he instituted marriage in the family for believers, because this is Malachi 2.15, why does God, you people who are about to get married or just recently married, why did God establish marriage? Why does God like Christian marriage? It says here, he seeks godly offspring. That's your number one job as Christians that are married. Your number one job is not to get rich, not to get a Cadillac. Your number one job is to produce godly children. That's why, you're, that's why God has you here. And that fits perfectly with all the passages we just read. The covenant promises in the Old Testament to believing parents and their children teach us that catechization and discipleship within the family is viewed by the Lord not as parents witnessing to little heathens, but as parents instructing their children to be faithful to the covenant to which they are already obligated 
by providence, they're born to Christians, and the covenant sign they receive as an infant. And that's obvious. This stuff is clear. God has always treated families as covenantal societies, as covenantal institutions, as an organic unity. In the Bible, the household includes everyone who is part of the covenant family unit. And this point is true both positively and negatively. In Genesis 7-1, Noah enters the ark with everyone in his household. God saved Noah and his whole family. You also see 1 Peter 3.20. In Genesis 12-17, Jehovah plagued Pharaoh and his house. When God saved Abraham and set him apart, his whole household received the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Genesis 17, 12 to 13, 23 and 27, Romans 4, 11. In Genesis 19, 16, God saved Lot and his household from the destruction of Sodom. Now, his wife didn't make it out. Why'd she die? She didn't have faith. She looked back to the pagan society, the pagan world and life view, and God turned her to a pillar of salt. She was an adult. She had responsibility to have faith. When God was displeased with Abimelech, he closed fast all the wombs in his household, Genesis 20, 17 to 18. In Exodus 12, God ordered the Israelites to kill the Passover lamb according to their families, verse 21, and to spread the sacrificial blood on the lentil and the two doorposts of each house, which, by the way, makes a sign of a cross, the top and the two sides, verse 22. Each family was ordered to stay in the house until morning, verse 22. Thus God struck the Egyptians and delivered our households, verse 27. God saved the whole congregation of Israel, the whole families, from their bondage in Egypt, Exodus 14, 21, 22, 29, 30. God says that all Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud in the Red, in the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. In the book of Joshua, Achan, as well as his whole house, was destroyed because of their sin. And that's 7, 20 to 21, and 24 to 26. By the way, uh, the family knew what he was doing. They knew he had stolen and he had violated the law, and they didn't turn him in. They had an obligation to turn him in, or, or ask him to repent and give the, give the stuff back, because it was under the ban of God, and they didn't do it. They wanted the stuff. In Joshua twenty four fifteen, we read that Joshua spoke for his entire household when he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In 2 Samuel twelve ten, we read how David brought judgment upon his whole house because of the, his adultery and murder. And we've already noted the covenant headship built into the fabric of God's holy law. Exodus 25-6, Deuteronomy 4, 9, 6, 7, 7, 9, Psalm 78, 4-6, 103, 17-18, etc. So you have to ignore the doctrine of the family, of the whole Bible, to get rid of infant baptism. You have to ignore what covenants are. You have to ignore the obligation of the covenants. You have to ignore all these things. If the children of believers were not given covenant status in the New Covenant era, then A, it would have been a radical departure from thousands of years of divine command and church practice, and B, one could reasonably expect to find warrant for this radical change in the New Testament. We don't find any change at all. Not only is there no evidence of a radical change, but the status of covenant households and children remains the same as we've seen. And then C, the children of Christian parents would have less covenant promises and blessings in the New Covenant era than in the Old, which is unthinkable and contrary to the superiority of the New, new, the new Covenant. D. 
The meaning of baptism as a sign and seal would be radically different than circumcision, but Colossians 2, 11 to 14 and other passages make it abundantly clear that they signify and, that what they signify and seal is virtually identical. The ceremonial aspects, as we've known, which refers to the manner of the ordinance, it's not bloody anymore, now it's water, can be changed while the core meaning and significance remains. In addition, the testimony of church history strongly concurs with the biblical testimony in that the post-apostolic church and all the Reformed churches formally adopted infant baptism as biblical and necessary. The first Baptist sects that arose in the 1500s, the 16th century, after the beginning of the Reformation, taught heretical concepts of salvation. They were, they were all semi-Pelagian, and some were Pelagian. Uh, they were walking disorderly. They had terrible views of the law. They had terrible views of the Old Testament. They were a, a basket case of heresy. They adopted many or errors and walked disorderly. The Calvinistic particular or Reformed Baptists that arose during the 17th century in England were Baptists who adopted Reformed soteriology and concepts of biblical worship. They were wrong on baptism. They were Baptists, but they were really good on everything else because they got it from the Presbyterians and the Puritans. Do you understand? Because I, I, you know, I, I was a Baptist for a while, and I had a book called Baptist Thorough Reformers. Yeah, they were Reformers when they adopted Calvin's view and John Knox's view and the Westminster Standards. In fact, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith is the Westminster Standards with some changes in it. The great Baptists, such as John Bunyan, I have his complete works, John Gill, Spurgeon, I've got, uh, well, I don't know, 50 volumes or something, were solid in areas outside of the sacrament of baptism and church government because, because they stood on the shoulders of John Calvin and John Knox and the early Presbyterians and the Puritans. And, you know, the testimony of church history pulls no weight over scripture at all, but it's interesting that everything that good that came out of the Reformation came from Reformed churches. Now, Luther, of course, was great on the justification. And then one more thing, and we'll end. It is noteworthy that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus rebuked the apostles when they tried to keep the people of God from bringing uh, their little children and babies to Christ. For a blessing. That's uh, Matthew, Mark, have Padea, which means little children, while Luke has Brefe, which means ba babies or infants. So you had mothers, probably mothers, bringing babies and little toddlers, like two, three-year-olds, so they could sit on Christ's lap and be blessed by Christ. And the disciples, the apostles, are all, this is ridiculous. Get, you know, come on, we're busy here. Get these babies away from here. And Christ, it's, it actually says in the account, he was greatly displeased with this. And he rebuked them. He rebuked them. The Son of God himself regards the infants of church members. Oh, and, and the reason our Lord gives for, the, for his displeasure and rebuke is that, and he says this, this is in all three accounts. Uh, Mark 10, 14, Matthew 19, 14, and Luke 18, 16. For of such is the kingdom of God. The Son of God himself regards the infants of church members to be members of his kingdom, the visible church. Now, the Baptist remark, which I think originated with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, which is funny, 
that they did not bring their babies to the baptismal font sounds very clever, but it is stupid. For Christian baptism did not yet exist. One point of this passage is that as children of believers and members of the covenant, little children and infants receive special privileges and blessings that unbelievers and Canaanites do not possess. Jesus would not bless little Canaanite children, would he? He wouldn't even talk to them. Do the infants of believers have a responsibility to fulfill their covenant obligations by believing in Jesus Christ, confessing him before men, and obeying his law word for sanctification? Yes, they certainly do. But so do the circumcised infants born to the covenant people in the old covenant era. Once you understand the arguments, and we're, we're done with, with baptism now, uh, once you understand the arguments for paedo-baptism, infant baptism, from a reform perspective, without all the garbage of the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics and the High Church Episcopalians and the Federal Visionists who teach sacramentalism, uh, it makes perfect sense. It's fully in accord with the Old Testament scriptures, and it makes total sense, and it's totally biblical. But you've got to know these arguments, because people are going to confront you. So, I hope that was beneficial, and I know it's review from some of you. I did a whole... It was about 20, 22 years ago, I did a whole book on the sacrament. So this is a review. Uh, of course, some of you at that time were <laughs> like five years old and, t and eight years old. So let's thank God for the sacrament. And let's do it biblically. And, let's, and the important thing is, is to recognize it brings you into covenant obligations. You're obligated to believe in Christ. You're obligated to obey the law. You're obligated to be a servant of Christ and to worship him. Parents, you're obligated to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because they are in the covenant. It's not just a, it's not a missionary endeavor like they're little pagans. They're in the covenant. Your job is to make sure they keep the covenant. So if you send your children to public school, you're being totally irresponsible and unfaithful to your covenant vows at baptism. Now, I know that the OPC and the PCA and the RPCNA, they allow parents to send their children to state schools. But that doesn't make it right. They shouldn't allow that. It should be wrong. You know, that's one of those things where they ought to listen to Rush Dooney and uh, not pop psychology. But we'll end there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this teaching. It is, is really refreshing. It is really good for us to relearn, you know, listen to this again and spur ourselves on to be faithful to your covenant. Bend our hearts, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, giving us a deeper love of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, giving us a deeper love of your holy law so we'll meditate on it day and night, causing us to hate our sins, causing us to loathe ourselves when we sin, to die daily, to repent daily, to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Cause us, Lord, to be faithful disciples of your Son. Keep your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.